had the thought this week that I, I believe the last time I preached in the morning was in the days of the exile when we were over in St. Andrew's Hall. And I didn't plan very well, and I taught Sunday school just after I preached the 8.30 sermon. And if it's true what my wife says, I only have a certain number of words for the day. I might run out about halfway here, and we'd have to just call it good. Um, I've said more than I have before noon on most every day of my life. We're going to be continuing to work through uh, the book of 2 Samuel. We're on chapter 22 today. That can be found on page 322 in the Pew Bibles in front of you if you're using those. Uh, This last Monday, as a nation, we celebrated Memorial Day. The origins of this holiday actually date back to the Civil War where citizens in our country were encouraged to place flowers at the graveside of fallen soldiers. Actually, the the original name of the day was National Decoration Day, and they would actually decorate these gravesides with flowers. Little known fact, that's actually why we celebrated in May. It's one of the few months where there's flowers in both the North and the South. Well, we've moved on from National Decoration Day to Memorial Day, and instead of placing flowers by graveside we place often small american flags if you would have been at national the arlington national cemetery this past monday you'd have seen nearly 400,000 flags placed on that on those hollowed grounds to honor those who've fallen in war on last on memorial day my uncle who served in the marines there was a family text thread bouncing around there was pictures of all the fun that we were having that day and from people from different states in the southeast and my uncle I think he was trying to be kind but it was more of a a rebuke that was saying that while all of these look like they're great and I encourage y'all to have a great time always remember that the present freedoms that you had came at a cost from those in the past you know in some senses this is what David is helping us to see today David's at the end of his life and he's experiencing freedoms, but he's going back and looking at what has been accomplished on his behalf. Actually, these very words of Psalm 22 were put to a tune in Psalm 18. Identical text if you were to be looking at them just about. And David is encouraging us to remember that the salvation that the Lord has brought forward And as a result of what he's done, we're to be a people who praise him. This text in 2 Samuel 22 has 51 verses to it. I'm going to begin by just reading the opening verses and then the last one, filled with praise. And then in the sermon, I'm going to continue to talk through why was David's heart overflowing with this type of praise. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul he said the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and my refuge my savior you saved me from violence I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from all my enemies going forward now to the very end of this text in verse 50 for this I will praise you O Lord among the nations and sing praises to your name 
great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray in these moments we have together as David remembers all that you have done. We'd ask, O Lord, that we would be mindful of the saying and you would give us hearts that praise you. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Charles Wesley started writing hymns at the moment he was converted. It's thought that he wrote some 9,000 hymns throughout his lifetime. For people who would be conversing with him, they would, they would go on to say that when we were talking to him, we knew that even in these dialogues, he was writing a hymn in our conversations with him. When he would be moving from point to point on a horse, he always kept a sheet of paper in his pocket and he would have a shorthand that he would take notes on as he was thinking about hymns that he'd want to write and often showing up at his destination he would cry out for pen and ink pen and ink and they would bring him pen and ink that he could write down these hymns he wrote throughout his life and he wrote all the way to the end of his life and the months leading up when he was no longer able to write he would dictate these hymns to his wife he wrote hymns up until the very the last day of his life. This is the last hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. Just one verse. Who shall a hopeless worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art. Strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch one smile from thee and drop into eternity. And that's what he did. Moments after dictating that hymn, he experienced the smile of God as he dropped into eternity. In our text today, in a sense, David's writing his last hymn. He's writing a psalm, a song, remembering all that the Lord has done in his life. If, psalm, if uh, 2 Samuel 22 were a firework show, the grand finale is right at the beginning, what I just read to you. It's one beautiful splay of adoration after another. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. Boom, boom, boom. All of these. And then he moves to the heart of the text. He says, let me explain to you where this heart of praise comes from. It comes from the realization and the story of salvation that the Lord has accomplished in my life. He says it this way, the salvation that I experienced, it began in my weakness. We see this in verses four through seven. These events that are outlined in four through seven, if you were to read about them, they would actually be in 1 Samuel chapter 18 through 31, affectionately known as the Saul years. This is this season of life where the king was pursuing David. And he begins to give, uh, help us understand exactly what he was going through. There was one day his friend Jonathan came alongside of him. And Jonathan was doing what good friends do. He was comforting David. And he was trying to almost tap him on the back and say, now David, David, it's gonna be okay. You know, it's gonna be okay. And David at that moment would have nothing to do with it. And he said, you don't understand. Quote, 
as surely as the Lord lives and as surely as you live, I am one step away from death. That was David's experience in the midst of being followed by Saul. This text, he kind of unpacks that just a little bit more about what, how he felt during those times he was being pursued by Saul. First of all, verse five says, for the waves of death encompassed me. Now you have to begin to picture this. He's using imagery here to explain what his experience has been like. He's looking around and all he can see is water. And not just water, but waves. And not just waves, but waves of death. Waves of destruction turbulent waves all around him he goes on to say the torrents of destruction assailed me and the longer he was in it the water didn't subside it was rising on him getting more and more dangerous so in that position we've been um, trying to keep his head above water he then goes on to say that the cords of Sheol entangled me. So in this position, cords wrapping around his body, preventing him from even keeping his head above water. And then he says that the snares of death confronted me. Snares are hidden traps. Snares make you think that no matter where I go, whatever the next step is, I'm going to get caught in that David is saying this. I read this week that the Congo River and the Inga Rapids are the most dangerous in all of the world to try to navigate. Here's David's experience. He's saying it's as if I was dropped in the Congo River just after the rainy season, just above the Inga Rapids, and somebody took my hands and feet and bound them together and released me into that. And if for some reason I was able to get through that, it'd be the crocodiles waiting on the other side of that, these hidden traps that would come after me. That's what David's experience was like as he was being pursued in those moments. One commentator said his distress went far beyond facing a gallbladder surgery or replacing a defunct automatic transmission, death daily dogged his tracks. And in that state, we see David, verse seven, in my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God I called, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Like some of you who've been ministered to by Tim Keller over the years, I've spent some time these last couple of weeks going back and listening to some of my favorite sermons. Sermons that I could remember where I was when I heard it the first time. My favorite series that he taught the book of the Bible was the book of Genesis. And within that, there was a series called the Gospel of Jacob. Chapter 32, where Jacob is wrestling with the Lord. And in this sermon, he talks about Jacob, who just was a rascal. I mean, he was, was a, a wrestling rascal. He'd wrestle with his father over his admiration. He wrestled with his brother for the blessing. He wrestled with his uncle to receive his wife. And here in Genesis 32, Jacob, 
who's waiting to see his brother the very next day, it, there's a man approach him, they begin to wrestle, they grapple together. And commentators who've looked at this, they say that here in verse 32 was the turning point in Jacob's life. They actually look at verse 25 of that, where it says this person to whom he was wrestling with touched his hip and permanently devastated it. The Hebrew word there for touched, it's the most gentle form of touch that there could be. It was just a tap. And in that moment, Jacob, who was wrestling, he would have known that this person who I've engaged could have incinerated me at any moment if he had wanted to. And at that moment, immobilized, he realized that it wasn't his father he was wrestling with all his life or his brother or his uncle. It was, in fact, the Lord he'd been wrestling with. And he realized that that was the Lord he was wrestling with. And it broke him. Very next text, he's renamed to Israel. That's what the Lord does. He comes to us in our weakness. Because for most of us, that's the only time that we'll listen. C.S. Lewis, he said, right, that in our pleasures, God whispers to us, but it's only in our pain that he shouts to us. This is the beginning of what salvation looks like in your life and in my life. It begins in our state of weakness. He doesn't come to us in our comforts. He comes to us in our weakness, and it's in those places that we hear him. Verse seven says, in my distress I called upon the Lord to my God, I called from his temple, he heard my voice, and to my cry he heard his ears. Begins in our weakness, and then we see, within that weakness we see the next point of how God delivers his people, it's by his strength. This can be found in verses 8 through 17. Before I read this, when I was first assigned this text, I was a little bit disappointed, to be perfectly honest, because when I think of 2 Samuel, I think of historical narratives. I like to read nonfiction. I generally don't read poetry. I like historical narrative more than I like the book of Psalms. It's just the way that the Lord wired me. This basically is a psalm. And you read through things like this sometimes, you say, you know what, David wrote 70 Hebrew words that were translated into 150 English words when he could have said the exact same thing in four words, Yahweh delivered me. But David decides to do something different here to explain exactly what the Lord accomplished. He wants you to see who God is in all this phosphorescent splendor that's what one commentator said. Someone after church said, you know what that is? That's what is in those little stars in your ceilings that you stick to the ceiling and they capture the light and you turn the lights off and there's still this afterglow. That's what poetry can actually do. You can read through and you walk away and there's just this glow of understanding of who the Lord is. So listen to how David explains who the Lord is in his rescuing. 
verses 8 through 17. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode in a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy. We see the Lord saving. Saving with the strength which begins with anger. Anger is rarely the emotion that accompanies good news and salvation. I think of anger as often immature, someone who can't control themselves. But that's what the text says, God is angry. I'm sure many of you have seen that little video that has come out. I think it was from an actual movie, but it begins with a little cub bear frolicking along the shores of a river. The cub bear is moving along, and then the camera pans to this cougar who has spotted this bear seemingly orphaned or abandoned. And this cougar begins to pursue this cub bear. Running along the river, they're going back and forth, and all of a sudden, with no real place to go, this cub bear goes out onto this limb that's above a swift-moving river. No problem for the cougar. She begins to move towards the bear, and with nowhere to go, where you're hanging on the edge to wonder what's going to happen. Well, this cub gets to the end of the branch and just pauses and snap, falls down into this raging river and gets washed forward. Cougar runs down, goes along the side of the river, and is waiting for this little cub to wash ashore, knowing at that point he's going to be exhausted, and he'll, came, he'll finish what he started. Cub washes ashore, exhausted from trying to keep its head above water, and all of a sudden the cougar and this cub begin to uh, square up. The cougar swipes and catches his nose, and this cub begins to cry, to cry out. And the cougar begins to position itself and swipes again. The second time he cries out, but this time as you're listening to it, there's a greater cry than you would expect from a little cub. And the camera then pans out, And there is a Kodiak bear, friend of this little cub, that's right behind him. And it is as if there is steam coming from his nostrils. There is an anger there. And I can assure you on that day that that anger was good news to that cub. You know, as I've been thinking about this particular part of who the Lord is, I think this is a part that we often don't believe. There is death and destruction in some form or fashion in each of our lives. There's effects of the fall that are taking place in us right now. And what this text says is that God does not sit idle on those moments. He's not indifferent towards them. He's not busy doing something else. 
that what you can say and believe as one who is in Christ, that it angers the Lord when death and destruction of any kind come upon his children. It allows us to recognize that we don't have to always be the person advocating and vindicating ourselves. It allows us to be free when we're suffering the consequences of the fall to say the Lord hates these things. This is not the way that it was supposed to be. And to know that in his anger there is a drive of love towards me. First church, I ask you if you believe that. When these moments of death and destruction come, do you believe that God is angry at that? And then we see that not only is he angry, he moves. Then just ponder it. The text that he moves, he bows, separates the clouds, and he comes down. Instead, he's on this cherub and he's on this dark cloud, and he has this bow with a lightning as his arrows pointed. Verse 15, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. What's the them? Death and destruction. He wins. He's coming to defend his own. He comes in his anger, then he approaches us, and then ultimately he says, he, deli- <clears throat> excuse me, he delivers us in verse 17. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Drew me out of many waters, drew me out of many waters. That's a phrase we've heard before. Actually, only one other time in the whole of the Old Testament. Exodus 2, verse 10, Pharaoh's daughter drew Moses out of the water. You think Dave was trying to make a connection there? That this same God who delivered Moses, the same God who delivered his people, is the same God who delivered me, is the same God who's going to deliver his people under any circumstance against all odds? That's exactly what he's saying at that particular point. There's something really interesting that takes place when you're reading through this larger section. Verses 8 through 17, it's basically he did this, he did this, God did this, God did this, God did this, and then you flip over and you get to like verse around 32 through 40-ish, 45, and it flips. God did this, God did this, and then he starts to say, I did this, I did this. Just as an example, look at verse 41. He says, you made, you made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. Well, which one was it? You know, what David's doing here, he's helping us to understand how the Lord works. There's a part of the way that the Lord works that we can actually see. But there's another part that we're unable to see. David is saying, anything that I'm able to do, I'm standing on the shoulders of he, of him, of God. And you can just go back and forth. It's all the same story. I was reminded of this recently. Uh, there was a pastoral candidate in our presbytery. And an email was sent regarding him saying that, please pray for him, his two-year-old son is being medevaced in a helicopter to Savannah. Scant details, but it looked grim. All of us were thinking, my goodness, it doesn't sound like this little boy is going to make it. The next day, we heard that he actually survived, and we were all thankful. And I saw this pastoral candidate a couple months later uh, at a church, and I said, what happened? He said, John, I was homesick one day from work. I was on the couch. My wife went out for a jog. She said, watch our son. And 
I was watching him, but evidently not as I should. And um, she came back from her run. They live out in the country. Back door is always closed. The door was open. She walks in and says, where's our son? He said, what do you mean? He goes, he's not in here and the door's open. They both look at one another, immediately sprint to the one place that he could not be, to the pond. They got there, he wasn't there. <sighs> they begin to canvas the ear, calling out his name. Dad's in the front, mom's in the back where the pond is, and all of a sudden there's this shriek, he said. And he said, I knew what that shriek was. He ran back to the pond, the son was face down ripped him out of the water. They lived far enough in the country that you call 911, but you start to drive to meet the ambulance. And uh, as he was racing uh, forward with his son, he begins this language. Interestingly enough, he was being tested for theology sometime shortly thereafter for our presbytery. And after he told me this story, I said, he's a theologian. Theology doesn't get tested on a concrete floor in the church. It gets tested when you're on a dirt road with your son. He said, John is, you know, he goes, it was the Lord. The Lord had us go to this little spot that, you know, we couldn't see initially. And then my, my wife, she, you know, pulled him out. And then, you know, I got in the car and we, I started going as fast as I can. But it was the Lord who put oxygen back in that little boy's lungs. And these medevacs, they did this thing and the helicopter and all these things. But then God put him in this doctor who did these things. And it just goes back and forth. In the life of the Christian, there are things that we are able to see. And there are things that we are not able to see. And we need to be a people who can verbalize the unseen, the ways in which God is moving by his strength. I, I, you left that story and you're like, yeah, I mean, we had a role. I drove him in these things, but he said it was the Lord's strength that delivered my son on that particular day. The Lord's salvation comes to us in our weakness. It's accomplished by his strength. And finally, it comes to us Listen to this. It comes to us because he delights in us. That's what verse 20 says. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. How do we know that David is convinced that the Lord delights in him? I think the explanation is here in verse 21 through 25, and it is some of the most surprising, puzzling text in this whole narrative. I'm gonna read it, and you'll see why. This is David speaking of himself. Okay, verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands he rewarded me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his rules were before me, and from his statues I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness of my hands. One scholar said this regarding these verses. We have no difficulty understanding what he is saying. Our problem is, how can he possibly mean it? This is David. David who had slept with Uriah's wife. David who had the blood of Uriah on his hands. David wrote a lot in the Bible, but I would argue the most profound thing, statement he ever made took place just a couple pages before this one. It's when Nathan rebukes him. 
and he unloads on them. And he says, because of what you've done, this consequence, this consequence, this consequence, what you did in the night, this is going to be done in the day, and this, this, this. And I don't know about you, but when I started to read that, when, when I start to hear of someone laying out the ways in which I've sinned, how I've hurt people, the consequences of this, I have several strategies. Blame shift, or I get really sad about how this is going to personally affect me, or I start to say, well, what about you? And yet David, this is his comment that particular moment. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no blame shift. No self-protection, just an honest evaluation of who sinned and who he sinned against. And then after that, it's my second favorite line in all of Samuel. Nathan says, a mouthpiece, a prophet of the Lord, a mouthpiece for the Lord, and he said this, the Lord has put your sin away. David had to write a song about that. Psalm 51. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. The problem we have with verses 21 through 25 is that we still remember David's sin. And we pin it on him. Remarkably, the Lord doesn't. What puzzles us is that David sees his life as the Lord sees his life. And David has been forever changed as a result of understanding that this God who delights in me has made me into this man who can say these things about himself, who now aspires to live in these ways. What David is saying is that when all these accusations come to me, whether in my own heart, I'm my greatest accuser, or whether they come from other places, David, he says, take refuge in the Lord to remember who you are. Jessica Buchanan was an aid worker in Somalia, lawless land. She worked there to help young children avoid landmines in the area. On October of 2011, she was kidnapped by a, a band of uh, pirates of sort who determined that her, she had a great value since she was an American. They contacted, uh, they went through the proper lines to get in touch with someone and the ransom was $45 million. During her 93 days living in this barren, unforgiving land under a tree, She's exposed to the elements of sun. During the night, it was during the rainy season, she was just assaulted with rain during, from sunrise, sorry, to sunset to sunrise during the night, just freezing. Surviving on just a small piece of bread and a little bit of tuna fish each day, she lost some 25 pounds and was withering away. From time to time, the hostages would video record her to communicate that, hey, she's still alive to Americans, on one of these recordings that made its way back to America, she said, look, I, I think I have some type of kidney infection and that I'm close to the end. 
that recording made its way to the Oval Office. The president pulled together doctors and said, if in fact this is a, a kidney problem, how long does she have to live? And the, the thought was about two weeks. During those two weeks, on one particular night, she laid in bed, this in the open sky, dark as night, thinking to herself, I'm not so sure I'm gonna be able to make it one more night here. Not so sure if she's gonna see the next sunrise. Shortly thereafter, she heard gunfire. Her first immediate thought was, this is a rival gang. Not only are they gonna kill those I'm with, they're gonna kill me as well. She, she began to just cry out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, 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 God, God, help me, help me, help me. She took her blanket and she covered it up and just was trying to say, think that somehow that was gonna protect her. And in this absolute moment of fear, someone came and grabbed her. She just started to scream started to protect herself, throwing her arms and legs. And at that moment, she heard this, Jessica. And immediately she knew that is not a Somalian accent. She froze. We're with the United States military and we're here to take you home. What she did not know was that message made it back to the president who sent a detachment of SEAL 6 teams who parachuted under the dark of night on this new moon and came in to get her. They picked her up, carried her to this design pickup place. I watched this on 60 Minutes, her recounting this. If you go back and watch it, there's this moment where she's describing this next scene. She, she made her way through most of it, but this last little moment, you can see she started to get emotional. So I went back to this place and these, these military troops, they thought that they heard someone out there. They thought that someone else might be out there. She said that they formed a circle around her, told her to lay down, and they laid down on top of her. Scott Peely with 60 Minutes said this, when all those seals lay down on top of you, you were the most important thing in the world to them. It's really hard to comprehend that, you were going to take a, that they were gonna take a bullet for you. And in that moment, there's this pause, and all she can say is, mm-hmm. But it wasn't like a mm-hmm, like I don't have words to, for this. It was like a mm-hmm. I cannot believe that someone would do this for me. They loaded her onto the helicopter, and one of the SEALs gave her a folded U.S. flag. She said, that moment, I've never been more proud to be an American, and I'll never forget what was done on my behalf to regain my freedom. You know, ultimately, Jessica's story is our story, isn't it? It's a story of being held captive by death and destruction. It's a story of crying out to the Lord in our weakness. It's a story of being an absolute passive participant, never being able to release ourselves, and God creating a special hops plan and sending his best to come in to rescue us. And it's the unbelievable truth that 
We take, we have no part of us, no good work that we've done, nothing to do with ourselves, but simply because God delights in us and he loves us. And if we are a citizen of his kingdom, a son or daughter of his, he'll do whatever it takes to bring us home. In the midst of reading this song, I thought of one more, and I'll just end with these lyrics. We sing it at Easter. I think this is, it's been the response of my heart this week. It says, Oh, make me thine forever, and shall I fainting be? Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this grand story of salvation that David remembers in his own life and that to those who are in Christ is our story as well, that you come to us in our weakness, that you deliver us by your strength, and you do so because you delight in us. Father, that truth is planted in the deepest tissue of the human heart. It will transform every word we say and ever act, every act we do. Holy Spirit, only you can accomplish that. We ask that you would. In Christ's name we pray, amen.